Mindfulness Mode 402. I think there's something very primordial about the beat of a drum. In every culture, in every meditation and experience, there is usually some kind of rhythmical beating. I think it does stuff to our brain. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to the show. When I first started Mindfulness Mode, one of my goals was to interview scientists and experts who understood how science would back up mindfulness and consciousness and all that kind of thing. And I feel like I'm really happy when I have a guest like today because he is a scientist and he is extremely knowledgeable about mindfulness and science and how they converge. I interviewed my guest in London, England. I was in London, Ontario, where I live, and we had a great conversation about spiritualism. And his book is called Spiritual Atheist which is a very interesting title for a book. And I have to tell you, I enjoyed it. It was a great read. It had fascinating insight. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview today with Nick Seneca Jenkel. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I have an awesome scientist here today who's got some fascinating theories that I'm sure you'll you'll find out about when you read his book because I highly recommend it. I have with me today Nick Seneca Jankel and Nick are you in mindfulness mode today? Um, I am. I'm in a happy blend of mindfulness and get stuff done somewhere between the two. That's a perfect blend. That sounds great. <laughs> Nick Seneca Jankel is a Cambridge ed- educated scientist who very reluctantly at first was called to become a spiritual leader. He struggled for many years with how to reconcile his profound experiences of the transformational power of spirituality and meditation with his belief in science and reason. Realizing millions of people who identify as spiritual, not religious people, which is about 25% of the U.S. population, they struggle with the same thing. Well, he's spent the last few years writing a book that tells of his quest to unite science and wisdom into a rigorous and radical life philosophy that ensures we can heal ourselves, transform our problems, and thrive in life in love and in leadership and here is the book and (laughs) i am excited to have it in my hands it's called spiritual atheist a quest to unite science and wisdom into a radical new life philosophy to thrive in the digital age so nick thanks so much for being here and tell us what does mindfulness even mean to you great question actually i I, something i've been thinking about in advance of this show and um what it means to me is probably different to what it means to most people in the current sort of mainstream understanding of mindfulness. So for me, mindfulness is, is an ancient practice, an important practice um, for um, understanding ourselves, for understanding what consciousness means, what mind means in, in a Buddhist sense of mind, not a, a Western um, rationalist sense of mind. And for then understanding that consciousness, and for me, critically, being able to master our consciousness, to be able to master our emotions, master our um, habits, our thoughts, our beliefs. And when I say master, I don't mean control or, or push down. I mean be able to play with and learn from and understand. And in doing so, become ever more 
of service to the world. And that's an important part for me of mindfulness is it's, it's a tool for essentially devotional service. Well, it sounds like you've had a wildly successful life. And I mean, you've done amazing things up to 30 years old. Most people would have thought, wow, this is unbelievable. And then at 30, something happened to you. Can you describe that? <laughs> well, I was brought to my knees really. Um, uh, and actually physically at some at one point on my knees, sort of in pain and suffering and, and heartbreak. Um, and a number of things that had gone on. I had realized that um, I couldn't work at the scale and the pace I've been working at for so many years and expect it to be healthy for me. Um, and that also should include my employees at the time. It was not a healthy system. Um, to be so unmindful, unconscious a lot of the time of who I am and what my contribution is to a moment, to a relationship, to a system. And then that was the sort of initial breakdown moment of, of sort of collapse. People would call it burnout, entrepreneurial burnout. But for me, it was a lot bigger than that. It was also probably a, what would be called in the world today a spiritual emergency. It was a crisis precipitated by my lack of understanding of myself and my conscious experience, my spiritual experience. And then probably thirdly, there was a, a sense of deep heartbreak that I'd got a career and a business I'd built around using tools like mindfulness and um, psychology and philosophy, but I was using them to probably diminish human experience rather than enhance it. And I think that somewhere deep in me just broke and I was like, can't do this for another day. Wow. Um, so it was, it was quite spectacular at the time. It was dramatic. Um, but, you know, that was, uh, let's say, 15, 16 years ago now, maybe slightly less. And um, over the years, I've had a lot of chance to unpick the winding of the screw to that point. And then lots of years, obviously, to unwind it, because it's not just the thoughts and beliefs. It's the patterns underneath them, the habits, the, the emotional trauma, the memories, um, cultural, ancestral, um, you know, passed on down through my family. So there's a lot to unwind to truly step out from that place and become mindful in the full sense of mindful, as in fully aware of myself at, at, at the best I can be in any given moment and what I'm bringing into that this moment. And if it comes from my heart or if it comes from another source that, that is less mm, juicy, right. thrivable, thrivable is a word I like to use. If it just brings less I don't like to use the word goodness because it starts us into moralities and things, but it just brings right. less life into the moment. And did all this come down on your 30th birthday? Not exactly, just before, actually. Just before. Um, but I think it was precipitated in, by this, um, what people now call in uh, in, uh, in the media, uh, a quarter-life crisis um, oh. is a new term for, for a crisis in your late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. Um, it didn't exist. I was just uh, having a meltdown. <laughs> Yeah. And didn't your company have something to do with the Xbox coming to the world being made available to people? Yeah. Less about the Xbox itself, but about the marketing of the Xbox. Okay. So we did work, uh, a lot of work with the Microsoft team um, and at lots of different video games and, and technology as a whole. I was part of that whole technology, technology, explosion, sell stuff, get lots of people interested in something, you know, 100 million people, scale, speed. Right. What we would call the Silicon Valley uh, energy, yes, uh, and um, it's a lot to take on. 
<laughs> I can believe it. <laughs> it's, um, it's not very sustainable, actually. I don't right. think for anyone. Um, and I think you can see that either through the personal lives of a lot of people in that space, um, but also through the business models that are being created in the world that aren't really bringing a lot of goodness into the world. Um, I say in the book, um, you know, it's a great tragedy that the best minds of our generation are working out how to flip, get you to flip Facebook twice more a day um, or find a parking space in San Francisco. Like it's, you know, these are, we've got so many problems in the world. That's yeah. for me, it's not mindful technology for want of a better expression. Right. And didn't you then decide you needed to escape to another country? I did. I had to, I had to decompress, I think is the popular term. I had to get out of the situation I was in. Right. But I also had to go inside. I'd never really spent that much time inside. I hadn't done really a committed meditation practice until that kind of time. I dabbled. Right. A bit of yoga, bit of this, bit of that. But it, I hadn't fully realized that what I now realize, which is everything we really truly desire, the experience of it can be found, has to be found inside. And nothing from the outside, including work, Pulitzer Prizes, doesn't matter what it is, nothing can can trigger that sustainably until we go inside. And all that excitement I've been wanting in the in the technology scene and the, the the entrepreneurial scene, excitement, the adrenaline, the success feeling of like, you know, that I think what the Americans say, we crushed it, that kind of energy. Right. I got it inside. And that was a massive like that was like a sliding doors, whole different life opened up uh, when I realized that. And didn't you go to India first? I did. Yeah. Yes, the birthplace of of uh, many traditions, wisdom traditions. Um, beautiful place. I mean, is, if you haven't been to India um, and you are at all intrigued, really do go because it's it's one of those places that it's a cliche to say go to India. Obviously, because people have been there since the sixties trying to find themselves. Probably the fifties. Probably the fifteen fifties. Um, but there's something about the depth of spirituality in the culture. And in the earth, it just it's just there everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's someone praying, doing puja, like a devotional practice, meditating, yoga. Um, it's so welcomed and so expected part of everyday life that it can really encourage that part of us to flower. Uh, I'm not sure we'll find ourselves, but we'll find um, um, we'll find how to go inside ourselves. Maybe is a better. And is that what you discovered? Absolutely. Absolutely. How long did it take you? Um, months of um, both practice, but also as I talk about in my all my work, for me, breakthroughs, transformations happen less about they're less about getting things, they're more about letting go of things. And it's an amazing lesson to learn. It would be called surrender. You, you have to surrender old thinking to get the new amazing feeling. And that's not something we get taught. We get taught you have to strive and hustle and push to get something you want. And actually, I've learned the opposite is true, to get mindfulness, to get peace, to get a sense of, of equanimity. Whatever it is that we're looking for, it's actually letting go of, of stuff that's covering it, that's getting in the way of it, that's, that's being noisy and, and demanding of us. And then underneath it, there's this ever unperturbable, Majesty, whether you like the idea of a pond or a sun or a lotus, whatever image brings that un un unperturbable presence, for want of a better term, 
is just waiting for us. And that's the sort of the cosmic joke is you think you have to go and get something, actually you have to let go of stuff and then you'll find it. And what were some of the tools you used in order to let go of things? Again, many. Uh, I'm a big fan of collecting tools to because there's different moments, you know, in your life. Yes. You know, I would say anyone that doesn't have some form of meditational practice is going to be missing out on the primary tool. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I do love Kundalini and I love uh, ecstatic practices and shamanic practices. They're amazing. And um, a quiet, a practice of quietude of some sort um, is also just super important. And, and um, without that, I don't know how anyone can really engage in, in life in the craziness that it is at the moment. So that was key. But again, also ecstatic practices, movement, dancing. So the way I talk about it in the book is, you know, you have two basic options. You have quieter, quieting the ego so that it, it sort of freezes, freezing it out, or you heat it up and you burn it off. Uh, and they're both awesome. Um, and though, you know, three in the morning, it's hard to set up, get up and have a dance party and shake out some trauma. Um, so quietude is definitely more polite for my family <laughs> to engage with me. Um, and so that's, those are big practices. I guess also um, I've done a lot of work on how to use the meditative state once you've reached a place of quietude and equanimity, how to bring up trauma and pain and memory within it in a safe way so that you can release it. Um, and that's one of my great sort of urges as people who are into mindfulness, go to the next level and start to use it to, to purify, I think is the uh, term people use, to purify yourself. I don't mean that in a Christian sense of, of you're bad and you need to redeem yourself. I mean, taking pain, we all have, and um, clearing it away through practice, through, through going inside and realizing we're okay without it. And then it can cry, we can cry and we can release and we can surrender and then we can get back on with our day. When was the first time you knew you wanted to be a scientist, Nick? <sighs> I don't think I ever really knew I did want to be a scientist. Um, oh, didn't I, did, I think I did science because my dad wanted me to. I okay. wanted to be close to him <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I was good yeah. at it. Um, and now um, I love science to use it, but I definitely would never want to go back to a lab and do the sort of micro science of every day you know, pipetting stuff. And it's just not, I, I'm a generalist of a thinker. I'm not a very, you know, tiny, tiny area. So I love and embrace science. It's been foundational in my understanding of myself and the world um, and continues to be. I read the, you know, the science papers weekly. Um, but I don't think I ever wanted to be a scientist as a, the title scientist. I think I wanted to understand the world. And science is a really good way of understanding uh, a segment of the world. Right. In your book, you talk about the dilemma we have in our world with anxiety and depression and this kind of frustration that we, that we experience. Is there some solution that you can see to help us move away from that? Um, yes. And there's only one. So this is where I've really come to. So I, I, I was diagnosed with depression in my 20s unusual these days. Uh, panic attacks. Um, I had a, something called fibromyalgia, which I still technically have, but I don't experience very much. Um, and I've tried it. I tried everything, you know, pills, um, work, um, no work, rest, uh, you know, the whole gamut. Mm -hmm. And the 
reason why I do what I do now, which, as you mentioned at the beginning in the intro, I didn't want to do. I didn't sit there going, I want to be a spiritual person and a spiritual teacher. It just seemed to, it's the only choice when I'd realized what I realized, which is we can't truly be free until we feel connected to the whole. And you can call that whole, whole as in W-H-O-L-E. You can call that whole uh, everything. You can call it nothing. You can call it emptiness. You can call it form. You can call it fullness. Um, you can call it Brahman or Atman or mind or anything. It doesn't really matter what the word is. Until you feel that you're continuous with it, we will always feel small, afraid, alone. Um, and from that comes everything else, this, this separation with your with me and you and me and this microphone and the earth that separation is agony to the human experience because it's not real and so it's it's the great um what's illusion that we live under that that t terrifies our hearts and then all these other symptoms that we call depression or anxiety arise because we can't cope with the extreme terrors of life if we feel alone and and afraid and um disconnected to make it simple right well you have been described as a uh, 21st century shaman <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you do you feel that's a good description of you <laughs> it is it's not one that i publicize very much yeah <laughs> a lot of my work is with leaders in organization right. and i think they get since i'm going to come in with a feather um but if, if you think of a shaman as the archetypal um transformer of 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 either an individual or, or more often a tribe and every tribe had one from what we can tell someone whose kind of job it was was to deal with stuff when it was out of alignment and it was wonky um and they have different ways to do that i think in many ways part of our problems is we don't have enough shamans in the we need a shaman in every village uh, or these days you need a shaman with every digital village so every community you know, Facebook was populated by shamans helping people work stuff out. I think life would be a lot better. So the term can be quite provocative for people. Um, but if we think of, of a shaman as the, as the essential wisdom holder of every tribe, then I think it's an accurate description of people who do what I do, whether they're coaches, um, teachers, um, uh, yoga teachers, whatever format they see themselves in in this modern world, the the sort of ancient career path would be okay you're the wise person you're the shaman you're the you're the sort of transmuter and alchemist of 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 consciousness in your book spiritual atheism you have a chapter called music and ecstasy let's talk <laughs> about that is that important for us to have in our life music and ecstasy <laughs> i think it is i think there's something very primordial about the beat of a drum in every culture in every meditation and experience there is usually some kind of rhythmical beating i think it does stuff to our brain that entrances us out of our and it pulls us into um some kind of focus and then you add in some movement and with that movement you can express you can release um you can commune you know there's there's a, there's a reason why in every generation some form of communal dancing erupts. So in my generation, it was uh, dance uh, clubbing, um, electronic music. You go back to the 50s, it was uh, big band music. You go back, you know, you, there are, we like to come together and dance. And I think it's a way of us remembering that we are connected, even if 
our rational philosophies of life have us that we're not. It sort of makes some dance makes a mockery of the belief that we're separate and alone because it feels so not separate. It feels so communal and collective when we when we dance together. That's a great quote. I like that. Dance <laughs> makes a mockery. I love your quote when you, you talked about we are each an electrode in a massive circuit board. I yes. think that's a that's a very interesting way to think of us as human beings for sure. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I can see that. I think, I think there's, there's a couple of ways that I think I mean that. One is emerging. When you write, you often write. I do anyway. I write without... I write in one way and then I realize it could, could be something else that then helps my thinking emerge. And, and it's, I've been spending a lot of time thinking at the moment about the scale of the challenges we face as a, as a human species. And that one electrode, if you like, in the computer can't handle it. Um, we need all our electrodes joining up, working. You do this bit, I'll do this bit, you do this bit. Because the scale of climate change, the scale of poverty, the scale of injustice and political instability and... and uh, uh, migration is so huge. It's mind-boggling for any human being to fully comprehend. Then you add in AI and blockchain and all this other stuff. It's like, wow. And I think we need to find ways to process together. Um, which reminds me of one of the, my favorite quotes of the moment is the next Buddha is the Sangha. As in the next Buddha is the community, not an individual who comes along and is a, is a spiritual genius. But the next Buddha is the Sangha, which is us um, together when we can find ways to have high quality relationships, I think would be a simple way of putting it. Mm, I like that. I want to talk to you about consciousness. What mm. is consciousness? Once you die, will your consciousness remain? Yes and no, I think. And this is speculation. So so I always make a little bit of a, of a, of a delineation. So I teach a very profound transformational pathway where these questions are kind of irrelevant. Um, so I like to clarify speculatory philosophy from a pathway. So for me, speculation, um, my sense from understanding my experience of my inner world is that my consciousness will remain because it's all, always part of the whole consciousness. It does. I don't think it will remain as a little bit called Nick, that then pops into some other body. Um, and uh, but I do. Th but it's because it always exists. This, this consciousness always exists. This lens of it, I think, might not remain. Um, but the general flow of of consciousness that I'm part of that can't die because it can't. It, it's never created. It's all. It's permanent in existence. Um, and I think that's probably. I actually read some of the Dalai Lama's conversations about reincarnation, and I don't think he believes in reincarnation in the old-fashioned sense of here's a person and then pop, they come up in another hole. Um, but for me, if consciousness is always one and always connected and we are all electrodes in the circuit, then of course I might have memories and, and thoughts that don't come from my bio biographical boundary from 1974 February 2nd, when I was came into this world, um, I get insights, I get intuitions. And according to sort of mainstream science, there is, there's nowhere for intuition to come from, apart from old memories, but they don't feel like old memories to me. They kind of feel like new stuff coming from the future. 
Um, and I think that consciousness is not time bound in some way. I, I, obviously, the words break down because how can we even talk about these? How things? can we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How, we can't even find the words. When you were a teenager, <laughs> exactly. you decided to be an atheist. Does that mean you did not believe in consciousness of any kind when you were a teenager? So, yeah. So in the book, I set up this distinction between what I now call materialist atheism right. or conventional atheism, yes, which is that kind of anti-spiritual, anti-religious. If you can't put it in a test tube and measure it, if you can't put it in a scanner... It doesn't exist. And not just that, it's probably rubbish and probably evil and wrong. And in fact, we should just destroy anyone who doesn't do anything other than the science. That's kind of like the extreme atheism that I grew up with. And I sort of popped into when I was 15, 16. Um, I lived with that for 15 years, pretty much. And it didn't work very well for me. And that's hence the breakdown. Um, and I now talk about this idea of, of a spiritual atheism that says, okay, we don't need to believe in a one god a personal god a person with a face and, a, and an attitude um or a book one book that's the revelation of god that one god or a priest who has some direct relationship or some rules that were created three four five thousand years ago that can't possibly be right for all time because the world's changed i don't believe any of that stuff um so that's the atheist part of me but i also fundamentally understand consciousness to be not just something important but on an equal footing with matter with this all this stuff that you can measure um and for me that's the kind of conundrum of spiritual atheism which is fully spiritual fully believe in love consciousness connection um joy equanimity which is all about consciousness peace but also totally embrace that science has a really good role to play in our future and it's really good about telling us about the material world and i guess for me the book became a book during the writing where I realized that it wasn't just enough to believe in both of those things, consciousness and matter. We have to bring them together inside us, which is another way of saying we had to bring our heart and our minds into some kind of coherence so that we can make really good decisions based upon science and data and all the stuff that you get in a work day, um, but not on, on its own with some kind of deeper conscious experience, which you might call intuition or insight, uh, imagination. Um, and that for me is, is the reformation of atheism that I feel like I'm trying to get a lot of atheists to believe. That you don't have to throw away everything, just throw away the religious bit, but keep the spirituality because it's, it's the bit, it's the most important bit. I didn't know that. And I was an, a fool for many years because I didn't know that. Well, you were on a journey just like we all are. I loved your book. I just absolutely loved it. I mean, at first I, I took a look at it and I thought, hmm, you know, like it doesn't look that that thick. It doesn't look like a huge book. You get into it and it's just so meaty and so much, you know, it just, it just moved me. You know, it was just a wonderful book and I highly recommend Spiritual Atheist. It was fantastic. Uh, have you, I want to ask you this question because I always do. In writing this book and in moving forward in the pathway you are, have you been bullied by people who think this is rubbish or who, who just cannot embrace this at all? Have you felt a sense of bullying because of that? I mean, I don't know if I actually kept it in the book, but I wrote it originally in the book, so it, may, it might still be in there. I remember thinking about getting, getting rid of it. There's a sentence that says something like, I am convinced 
that I have been, I've lost projects, lost TV shows, lost friends, lost respect, lost income, um, lost all the things you think you need because I go out to the world and say, I'm guided by love. I mean, the craziness of it. Um, and that's one of the things I love about the mindfulness movement is it's it's made some inroads into that by, by making it um, just feel a bit more acceptable. Um, but I've definitely, you know, I live in an extremely cynical culture in, in London, uh, in the UK. And it's even in, when I fly to New York and LA, it's still quite cynical and aggressive against this kind of thinking and feeling. And um, it's been very painful for me. I mean, even my father, um, you know, he's, he doesn't really believe in this stuff or get it. Um, probably a lot of my family. And, you know, that's been part of my journey of also, in, uh, what's the word, uh, separating from other people, not needing anyone's approval. Um, marrying a woman who's a healer and, and teacher herself. So I have that deep trust uh, within my connection. But it's, it's definitely not been an easy ride. Um, and I actually was bullied for the first part of my life for being the sort of fat glasses wearing kid. And I was bullied for the second part of my life for being the spiritual guy in the world that doesn't want to hear about it. <laughs> and now I just about been able to find a way without, where I don't have to deal with it that much. Um, but for example, I'll be really honest with you. I sometimes take off the link to my new book, Spiritual Atheist, off my email if I'm emailing a, a corporation that I'm worried that that would just be a bit too much S word, as I call it, spiritual yes. word. Right. Um, and I don't like that I do that. Um, you know, I have a livelihood to earn. So it's kind of like a, it's a balancing act. It's not that I'm embarrassed about the book at all. It's like I don't want that to be a, a filter too early. You know, I'm happy to tell them about it. Three months in, mm -hmm. I'll go deep with you. It's kind of like, and, that, and that's an, a daily decision. And I, I, I wish we lived in a world where that wasn't the case. And I've, in fact, I think people who actually are religious get more respect from the atheists, the old-fashioned atheists, in some ways than people who are profoundly spiritual but don't have a religion to hook it onto. Um, and that's a strange state of affairs. It is strange, but it makes sense. I can see that that could could be a situation. Yeah. As we move forward in the interview, Nick, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. And the first one is this, who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Mm. Um, my wife. Uh, she brings me down into uh, connection. How, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? Oh, freedom giving me freedom. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. Ah, it's the, it's the, it's the thing. I mean, it's, it's the best hack there is. It's the quickest and the best and uh, the, the essential. <laughs> <laughs> Other than spiritual atheist, which I will put into the show notes, of course, at mindfulnessmode.com, what book would you recommend that is related somehow to mindfulness or consciousness or spiritualism? Mm. I mean, I'm a massive fan of the original texts, sadly not in the original languages. Um, so you would be hard to go wrong with um, the Tao Te Ching, um, the Chuangzu, the second book of Taoism, um, the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, some of these, just one phrase, and I can spend like a week mm. living the phrase of some of these beautiful poems. Wow. 
Can you recommend any kind of an app at all that could help people become more grounded or get a grip on mindfulness, help them to move through anxiety? Um, good news. I'm developing my app, own app. Uh, oh, good. No, no, nothing soon. <laughs> it's quite, it's trying to, it's trying to go to a sort of mind, what comes after mindfulness is the sort of brief, but I have two great friends who both have apps in the world who are, and they're both amazing. Um, one is my old business partner. Um, and he's got a, an app called free mind. Okay. Um, wonderful app. Um, and the other one's Buddhify, another friend of mine, both huge, huge hearted human beings. So free mind and Buddhify. Yeah, I'll put that in my show notes as well. Well, it's been fantastic to talk with you and uh, switchonnow.com. That's you. That's the easiest place to get into my world. It will then take you out to social and whatever. Um, Switchonnow.com. My company's called Switch On and it's all about switching people on for one of a better term. Uh, So we thought we'd call it that. Um, and yeah, if you come there, there's also actually, there's a bunch of free stuff on it. There's actually four free meditations that I recorded for the BBC, mm-hmm. um, a few years ago, uh, which they allowed me to, to share for free. Um, and a whole bunch of other free stuff. Uh, if you click on inspiration on the front page, you can get to some cool tools for mindful, conscious, heartfelt lives. Switch on now dot com and are you on social media as well can we connect with you there i am and yet this weekend i was thinking about getting rid of all my social channels as a as a i don't know a protection but you can and if you go to the website switchonnow.com you can see all the little icons or just go onto twitter and look for either my name or either nick jankel or switch on um some of the accounts are one or the other nick it has been such an honor to spend this time with you and talk to you about your book, Spiritual Atheist. Really an honor. And I thank you genuinely for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I love, you know, this is why I get up in the mornings to share and to connect with people in this quality of conversation. So thank you for, for hosting. My pleasure. All the best to you. Bye now. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, the Waves of Content Meditation. It's a guided meditation just for you, Mindful Tribe. It's free and it's very, very helpful to help you relax and get more focused. With more focus, you can get more things done in life that truly matter to you. On this meditation, I talk about waves and how the waves can bring you the more calm and more relaxed life you've been looking for. Download this guided meditation to calm your mind and relax your body. Mindfulnessmode.com slash waves of content.
So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.